0: Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink and this is Chris Stigney at Internet Radio. Today is Friday, June 14th, 2013, and we will endeavor to present the Book of Acts, Chapter 5. Praise Yahweh and thank you for listening. Chris Stigney, we had a few problems this week. What we've been... um slandered again by the Novemberists, that's the quarter of um, Christian identity Jewry, I guess, and and, um, that's okay, they could slander all they want, What we offer um, facts and scripture and they offer rhetoric, poor rhetoric, weak rhetoric, and ad hominem personal attacks, but that's fine. We also had a few websites that we host shut down. Hostgator, this time, Hostgator abruptly shut down several websites that I host for, um, well, well, I'm not at liberty to say who I host them for, but, but they're national socialist sites, they're not Christian sites, they're national socialists that they endeavored to um, present the truth concerning Adolf Hitler, the, the hollow hoax, as it should be called, the, the, the second greatest lie in history and um, several other facets of 20th century history. They're good sites, nseuropa.org, um, dersturmer.org, nstribuna.org, that, um, that they tell the story in, 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 in of the national socialist struggle in just about every European language. They're valuable, and they will be up. I will have a new home for them, I pray, by Sunday. That, that's my goal, anyway. Here we will commence with the book of Acts, chapter 5. In our presentation of the last chapter of Acts, chapter 4, along with some appropriate passages from the historical works of Flavius Josephus, it was demonstrated that 12 members of a certain family, all of them of the sect of the Sadducees, had held the high priesthood for most of the time, perhaps as much as three-quarters of it from about 6 A.D. up to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. This was the family of Annas, also known as Ananias, or sometimes Anias, depending on what, whether you're bringing a Greek transliteration or a Hebrew transliteration into English. It may also be Hannas, as it is in the Christian New Testament. This was the family of Annas and his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who were the high priests known from the accounts of the gospel. An argument was also presented contrasting two statements in Acts chapter 4 that these men were most probably Edomites rather than Israelites. Those two statements are found at verses 6 and 23. In verse 6, speaking of those opposed to the apostles and listing their leaders, the account adds that they were joined by as many as were of the race of the high priest. Later in the chapter, in verse 23, in contrast to those who persecuted the apostles, we read that upon the release of the apostles, they went to their own countrymen and reported as much as the high priests and the elders said to them. It was established that in other writings of Scripture, the apostles considered all the Israelites to be of their own race. Yet in Acts chapter 4, we see that such was not true of the high priests, whom the apostles considered to be of a distinct race. Therefore, it seems that the high priests of the time, while they were certainly Sadducees, were also very probably Edomites. At the end of Acts chapter 4, we are given a brief description of, of a growing post-Pentecost apostolic Christian community, which had already been described in Acts chapter 2, and which we discussed in detail while presenting that chapter. Here we shall reread that description at the end of Acts chapter 4, since it relates directly to the first events, which are described in Acts chapter 5. And the multitude, from verse 32, of those believing were of one heart and soul, and no one reckoned any of his belongings to be his own, but everything was common to them. And with great power the ambassadors delivered the testimony of the resurrection of Prince Joshua, and great favor was with them all. Indeed, neither was there any deficiency among them, for as many as were owners of farms or houses, selling them brought the proceeds of the things sold and set it by the foot of the ambassadors. And they distributed to each, just as any had need. Then Joseph, who was called Barnabas by the ambassadors, which is interpreted son of consolation, or son of encouragement, as we explained, a Levite, a Cypriot by birth, selling a farm belonging to him, brought the money and set it before the feet of the ambassadors. Cypriot is actually Kupriot in Greek. I've heard some people make the claim that the K was like an S to the Romans, and that's simply not true. I don't know how or when or why, but sometime in the late medieval period of the Roman Catholic Church, the Roman C, which was hard in classical times, It can be established that it was pronounced hard, like the Greek K, and like we sometimes pronounce that letter C in English, right? Somehow it became soft into like an S-type sound, a sibilant, I guess that's called, right? And, And that happened very late in history, after the fall of classical Rome. And with that side note, we will commence To Acts chapter 5, verse 1. And a certain man named Hananias, a name very familiar to that of the high priest, Hannas, with Sapphira, his wife, very similar, I'm sorry, sold the property and set apart some of the proceeds, and his wife, being an accomplice, and having brought the one portion, set it by the feet of the ambassadors, then Peter said, Hananias, why has the adversary filled your heart for you to lie to the Holy Spirit and set apart some of the proceeds from the land? Small translation notes, the Codex Bezae and the majority text have for you to set apart. The text follows, the the text of the Christogenean New Testament, which I am presenting here, follows the um, 4th century papyrus P8, and the codices Sinaiticus Alexandrinus and Vaticanus. Earlier in the verse, rather than filled, the Codex Sinaiticus has a word which is very similar in form and may have just been a scribal error, which may be rendered as incapacitated. Translating verse 3, I chose to render that word, Satan, with a capital A here, the adversary, primarily because it appears with the definite article as a substantive, ho Satanas, and therefore it refers, in common Greek usage, to a particular entity. However, that does not necessarily mean that one of Yahweh's capital A living adversaries here on earth of which there certainly are many, had persuaded Hananias to do such a thing. Neither does it necessarily mean that some demon or some angelic being had directly caused Hananias to do such a thing. But rather Under the power of the wicked one, the whole world lieth in wickedness. 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. And so we see in James, in his epistle, whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Important concept here. In Luke chapter 4, we read this. And bringing him up, speaking of Christ, he, speaking of Hodiabolus, the devil, right, showed him all of the kingdoms of the inhabited earth in a moment of time. I would interpret this as being one of Yahweh's capital A living adversaries here on earth. A genetic adversary. Then the false accuser or Ho the devil, said to him, I will give to you the authority over all this and their honor, because to me it was delivered, and to whomever I wish I could give it. The eternal enemies of God, those capital A adversaries, collectively Satan, the descendants of those fallen angels who very often mix their seed with every kind, including ours, including Adam kind. That's why we have Jews today, right? The eternal enemies of God are the princes of this world. In the time of Christ, the most recent reasons for this situation that they attained that position is due to that apostasy of ancient Israel from Yahweh their God. And because of that, the enemies of God have remained the princes of this world. And they have nothing to do with Christ. Referring to John chapters 12, verse 31, 14, verse 30, and 16, verse 11. The world, the society, having been perverted by the enemies of God, then seeking after the things of this world, one's heart is filled by the adversary because those adversary to God are the princes of this world. When you chase the things of the world, you chase the enticements which the adversaries of God use to lure men away from God, which are the riches and the comforts and the lusts and the vices of this world. From Luke chapter 20, verse 24 Show me a denarian, the demands of Christ. Whose name and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. So he said to them, accordingly, You render the things of Caesar to Caesar and the things of Yahweh to Yahweh. Ananias failed to do that, pursuing the riches of this world and and, and wishing to hold on to them. He failed to render the things of Yahweh to Yahweh. But his sin is much greater than that. Verse 4, did it not remain yours to have kept? And was it in your own power to have sold, referring to the estate? While we are not told any of the details whereby Hananias and his wife had agreed to join this Christian community, we do see it described in Acts chapter 4, at verse 34, that those who joined the community had sold whatever property they had and turned the proceeds of the sales over to the use of the community. Therefore. Peter must have asked this question because Hananias was expected to have done this same thing as a matter of agreement, having chosen for himself to join the community. Joining this community voluntarily, Hananias was expected to have dealt with it honestly and sincerely. And the verse proceeds, the words of Peter. Why then did you set this deed in your heart? You did not lie to man, but to Yahweh, to God. The Codex Beze has that first phrase. Why then did you set it to do this evil in your heart? So in spite of Peter's earlier question, why has the adversary filled your heart? We see here that Hananias himself is responsible for the decision to do wrongly, and therefore our interpretation is justified. Verse 5. And hearing these words, Hananias falling, expired, or died. And great fear came upon all those hearing. Then arising, the young men wrapped him, and carrying him out, they buried him. While Acts chapter 4 is illustrative of how that first apostolic Christian community had functioned, and that should be a model to Christians because it is indeed a model of the coming kingdom of heaven, there were many early Christians who did not live in such communities, which we would term socialism, but it's Christian socialism, not Marxism. Yet Hananias joined this community not by compulsion, but voluntarily, as all its members were volunteers. And therefore, he should have dedicated himself to his commitment. From Luke, chapter 9, from verse 57. And upon their going on the road, someone said to him, meaning to Christ, I will follow you anywhere if you should depart. And Yahshua said to him, The foxes have dens and the birds of heaven nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay the head. Then to another he said, Follow me. But he said, Prince, allow my going first to bury my father. And he said to him, Let the dead bury the dead by themselves, but you departing proclaim the kingdom of Yahweh. Then another also said, I will follow you, prince, but first allow me to make arrangements for the things in my house. So Yahshua said to him, no one laying a hand upon the plow, then looking to the things behind is ready for the kingdom of Yahweh. Hananias with his wife set apart some of the money he gained from the sale of this property rather than sincerely surrendering themselves and their futures to that community to which they were committing themselves. They were looking to the things behind, and they were concerned with the cares of this world. These concerns tested their faith, and it failed. Yet by proceeding anyway, they were testing God, and they were punished for it. They didn't have to proceed if they weren't going to be honest. If their faith failing, they had stayed away. They may have been better off since committing themselves halfway. They were being lukewarm and neither hot nor cold. The words of Christ, Revelation 3.16, so because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth failing to keep a vow, which they had made voluntarily. Hananias and his wife were punished according to the law found in Deuteronomy chapter 23. And I'll read from verse 21. When thou shalt vow a vow unto the Lord, unto Yahweh thy God, thou shalt not slack to pay it, for Yahweh thy God will surely require it of thee and it would be sin in me. And in verse 22, we see that Hananias and his wife had an opportunity to withdraw. But if thou shalt forbear to vow, it shall be no sin in thee. That which is gone out of thy lips, thou shalt keep and perform even a freewill offering, according as thou hast vowed unto Yahweh thy God which thou hast promised with thy mouth. When Christians pick up a Christian cause, they must determine to provide for that cause accordingly, as Yahweh their God provides for them. It is evident throughout later scripture that not all Christian communities may have expected the immediate and complete dedication which the apostolic community had, had required. However, Hananias and his wife Witnesses to the marvels which were occurring through the apostles at that time, if they were sincere in heart, they would have happily complied with the expectations of the apostolic community which they were joining in anticipation of the greater heavenly rewards in which all Christians should have faith. The apostolic community was certainly ready to provide for the needs of Hananias and his wife. However, they distrusted it, and therefore they kept a reserve of the money for themselves from the sale of their estate, which was a sign that they lacked complete faith in the apostles of Christ. If the body of Christ, which are the Christian communities, is to survive in this world, then Christians must dedicate themselves to those communities. And not only to their own future well-being, which they must have faith that Yahweh God will provide for them. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. And do not fear from those killing the body, but are not able to kill the soul. But rather fear he who is able to slay body and soul in Gehenna are not two sparrows sold for an And one of these does not fall upon the earth without the consent of your father. But of you even the hairs of the head are all counted. Therefore do not fear, you are worthy more than many sparrows. Verse 7. And an interval of about three hours transpired, and his wife entered in. Not knowing that which happened. Then Peter responded to her, tell me if you received so much for the land. And she said, yes, so much. The Christianian New Testament aspires to be very literal and very concordant. In this last verse, Peter's question may have been rendered colloquially. Tell me, did you receive this amount for the land? with Peter evidently referring to the incomplete amount that Hananias and his wife had surrendered. Sapphira's answer may have been rendered, yes, that amount. Verse 9, And Peter said to her, Why then was it agreed between you to test the spirit of the prince or the spirit of the Lord? The spirit of The Holy Spirit is the spirit of Yahshua, who is Lord. And we will establish this shortly. But for now. From the King James Version, Mark 12. And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is here. O Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord. There is only one God. Yahshua himself is Yahweh manifest in the flesh. To continue with verse 9. Behold the steps of those who have buried your husband are by the door. Peter speaking to Sapphira and they shall carry you off. And immediately she fell before his feet and expired, or died. Then entering in, the young men found her corpse, and carrying her out, they buried her with her husband. And great fear came upon the whole assembly and upon all those hearing these things. Fear could very likely be in a sense of awe. Notice that there were no police, no coroners, no prosecutors, no inquisition. What a wonderful society they had back then. And they thought taxation was slavery in the days of Judas the Galilean, who we'll speak about tonight, a little bit. Our taxes are incredibly more numerous At that time, crimes were punished on the testimony of witnesses alone. And if there were no witnesses, there could have been no crime, or at least no crime which was punished. Today, Peter would be investigated endlessly, and the young men would have been subjected to months of questioning, suggestions, threats, and coercion, oftentimes until one of them agreed to lie for the benefit of the bonuses which the government promises to its successful professional persecutors. Yes, I've been there. Acts chapter 5, verse 12. And through the hands of the ambassadors came many signs and wonders among the people, and they were all of one accord on the porch of Solomon. The Codex Bezae has, in the temple on a porch of Solomon. We discussed this porch where we saw, men- saw it mentioned, at Acts chapter 3, verse 11. And we mentioned that it was also named in the Gospel in John chapter 10, verse 23. This porch, or cloister, as Whiston translated the word, must have been quite large. For it seems, from the Gospel accounts, that it was able to hold thousands of people. Here is a portion of the description of the temple from Josephus's Antiquities, Book 15, lines 392 to 393, which I mentioned two weeks ago but did not, did not quote. Now the temple was built of stones that were white and strong, and each of their length was 25 cubits. That's pretty large. That's almost 38 feet. Their height was 8 or 12 feet, and their breadth was about 12, 18-foot-thick stones. And the whole structure, as also the structure of the royal cloister, which is what Josephus called the Porch of Solomon, was on each side much lower, but the middle was much higher till they were visible to those who dwelt in the country for a great many miles. But chiefly to such as lived opposite them and those who approached to them. So indeed, these structures were quite large. And this porch most certainly did accommodate thousands of people, if it could be seen a great many miles away. Verse 13. And not one of those others dared to join with them, but the people exalted them, speaking of the apostles on the porch of Solomon, who were preaching the gospel and performing miracles of healing. The phrase, of those others, Explicitly distinguishes a certain group, as opposed to the phrases, their own countrymen in Acts 4.23, and but the people, here in the same passage. The phrase is literally of those remaining, for which we may refer to Thayer's Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, at the word Loipus, Loipus, Strong's Numbers, 3062, 3063, and 3064. The word has three Strong's Numbers because Strong divided certain words by their parts of speech and how they were used by by the Greeks and in, in, in the New Testament at various times. And also by the Hebrews. That's why this. If, if you check... In the Hebrew dictionary in Strong's concordance, you'll see four different numbers for the word Adam. One's a, one's a noun, one's a proper name, one's an adjective, Strong divided his lexicon by the parts of speech. So Loipus has three Strong's numbers, but it's only one entry in a real Greek lexi- lexicon or a Greek New Testament lexicon, such as Thayer's. Thayer says in his entry for Loipus, with certain distinction and contrast, it means the rest, who are not of the specified class or number. That's how Thayer defined the word. It means, and it means are my words. With a certain distinction and contrast, the rest, who are not, of the specified class or number. And although Sayer omits mention of this particular instance in any of his examples which he gives of the use of this word, the phrase those others refers to people who are clearly not of the people mentioned later in the same verse but rather it refers to a distinct group. Being Sadducees, and as we are informed at Acts 4-6, of the race of the high priest, they are not Israel. And that's what I believe the Acts in these two chapters is telling us. They are not Israel, and they are therefore those remaining, which is what the phrase literally means, as the word may also have been rendered, to indicate those remaining apart from Christ, apart from the apostolic Christian community. This language clearly shows that those others could not possibly be apart with these Christians that they would not dare to join them, shows that they could not be Christians even if they wanted to. Verse 14. And still more they, meaning the apostles, added to those believing in the prince, or the Lord, if you will, a multitude both of men and of women, Consequently, even to bring out those with sicknesses into the streets and to set them upon cots and couches. That upon the coming of Peter, even the shadow, meaning Peter's shadow, which he casts, would overshadow some of them. The Codex Beze inserts at the end of this verse the words, so releasing them from any sickness that each of them had. It's an embellishment. Possibly an embellishment of clarification, but an embellishment nonetheless. The Codex Beze is full of them. We see likewise in the ministry of Paul, as recorded in Acts chapter 19 at verse 11. And Yahweh brought about extraordinary feats of power through the hands of Paul, so that even for handkerchiefs or sashes to be brought from his flesh to those who were sick and to be relieved from their diseases. And the wicked spirits made to depart. As an aside, certain critics often criticize Paul for the account of Acts chapter 19, verses 11 and 12. And they always fail to criticize Peter for this account given here in Acts chapter 5. Verses 14 and 15. They also failed to criticize Christ. The in Mark, of course. Paul bashers are pretty hypocritical. A pretty hypocritical lot. Mark, chapter 6, verse 56. Speaking of Christ. And wherever he entered into a village or into a city or into the farms and the marketplaces, they set down those who were sick and they exhorted him in order that they could even touch the border of his garment and as many as he touched him were saved, saved of their diseases. John fourteen twelve, Christ speaking to his apostles. Truly, truly, I say to you, he believing in me, the works which I do, he shall also do. And he shall do greater than these, because I go to the Father, And whatever you shall ask in my name, this I shall do, that the Father would be magnified in the Son. If you should ask me anything in my name, I shall do it. However, the subsequent words of Christ recorded in that chapter serve to qualify his statement further. And I will read from John 14 verses 15 to 18, which immediately follow the passage I just read. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I shall ask the Father, and he will give to you another advocate. This is an important passage. Another advocate that it would be with you forever. The spirit of truth, which society is not able to receive, because it does not see nor does it know it. You know it because it abides with you and it is in you. Christ must, the, the Holy Spirit hadn't descended on the apostles yet in John chapter 14. Christ must be talking about the Adamic spirit imparted to our race in Genesis 2.7. Then in verse 18 of that chapter of John, states, I shall not leave you fatherless. I come to you. I come to you. The spirit of the prince of Acts 5.9, or of the Lord, as the King James Version has it, is therefore one and the same as the spirit of Joshua Christ, I come to you. Where we see it recorded here in John chapter 14, that he talks of that spirit and tells his companions that I come to you. And John fourteen eighteen again elucidates for us that Christ is also the Father. Although the King James Version takes a Greek word, the word orphanus, from which we get the English word orphan, right? It takes that word, which literally means fatherless or parentless, and it renders it rather strangely as comfortless. Now, it is true that from the time of the tragic poets, the word can mean bereaved, but it first means fatherless or parentless. Christ is talking about his departing from the apostles. And he also says that he will return to them. I come to you, but in a different form, in the form of the spirit. He is the spirit of Pentecost. It's a it's a another manifestation of Yahweh our God. Verse 16. Then also came together a multitude from the cities around Jerusalem, bearing the sick, and those being troubled by unclean spirits, all of whom they healed. The Codex Beze and the majority text have from the surrounding cities into Jerusalem. The text of the Christian New Testament, from the cities around Jerusalem, I know it's not a huge difference, follows the codices Sinaticus, Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, and the fragment of Acts from the Codex known as 0189, which is believed to date from either the 2nd or 3rd centuries. Verse 17. Then stood up the high priest and all those with him, Being of the sect of the Sadducees, filled with jealousy, and laid the hands, the majority text has their hands, so does the King James, of course, and laid the hands upon the ambassadors and put them in public custody. This should serve as absolute and final proof of our contention that these high priests were of the sect of the Sadducees, which Josephus also helps to elucidate, and which we discussed at great length in our presentation of Acts chapter 4. The Greek word zelos, Strong's 2205, here is jealousy at the end of verse 17. It may have been rendered as envy, while the word may be translated or really transliterated as zeal. It's the root, it's the origin of our English word zeal, in some contexts. And where the King James Version has it as indignation here, the most likely meaning intended is jealousy on account of the number of the followers which the apostles had and how they were being exalted by those followers, as we see in verse 13. While the Sadducees may have had zeal for their own beliefs, which were so far different, yet there is no record of the Sadducees physically attacking and arresting any of the, any of the other sects, such as the Pharisees or the Essenes, for such a reason as that. It's more likely they were attacking the apostles, because they were jealous of them. The Sadducees, of course, being the party of so many high priests. I've never read a record of the people exalting them. I'm sure they did it out of jealousy. The same reason why Pilate suspected that the high priests delivered Christ to him out of jealousy, out of envy. The Codex Beze inserts at the end of verse 18 the words, and each went to his own place. Another embellishment, right? The phrase, in public custody, may have been rendered in custody in the public prison, where prison is inferred, or simply in the public prison. The word translated custody is teresis, a watching, a keeping, a guarding, or a means of keeping, a place of custody. The language at verses 19 through 23, where we see the words translated as cell and as jailhouse, buake and desmotarion, shows that the high priests both had and used their own jail facility within the temple complex, as we discussed here in Acts chapter 4, at the first arrest of Peter and John. And as we shall also see later in the accounts concerning Paul of Tarsus, they had their own jail at the temple. The Sadducees ran it. Verse 19. But a messenger, or an angel, but a messenger of the prince by night, opening the doors of the cell and leaving them out, said, You go. And standing, you speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. The words of this life. they are the gospel. The words we should live by, the words by which we should govern our lives." John 6:67: 6, "Therefore Yashua said to the twelve, "Do you not also wish to go away?" Simon Peter said to him, or replied to him, Prince, to what shall we depart? You have the words of life. And we believe and know that you are the Holy One of Yahweh. At Philippians 2.16, Paul also refers to the gospel as the words of life. Verse 21. And listening, they went before dawn into the temple and taught, But arriving, the high priest and those with him convened the council and all of the elders of the sons of Israel. And they sent to the jailhouse to bring them. But the attendants arriving did not find them in the cell. So returning, they reported it, saying that we found the jailhouse barred in all security. And those standing watch by the doors, but opening them, we found no one inside. The implication is that the angel was a supernatural and not an earthly angel, since the watch should have prevented any escape by human hands. Other such miraculous escapes from prison are recorded in Acts chapters 12 and 16 of both Peter and Paul. Of course, Paul was helped by an event of nature. An earthquake. If we are in prison, we can rest assured that Yahweh wants us in prison, whether for our trial or our edification or both. When we are released, that is also the will of Yahweh. Regardless of how the release itself is achieved, the prophets Jeremiah and Daniel were also in prison. And as the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 25 should teach us, we should not despise our brethren in prison where he says I was in prison and you came unto me. However we should indeed ostracize our brethren who are unrepentant sinners and we must also notice as it is fully manifest that many of those deeds most hated by Yahweh our God are not even punished by the world nor Are they even considered to be crimes? Things such as blasphemy and race mixing. Verse 24. And as the officer of the temple and the high priest heard these words, they were perplexed concerning them. What could this have been? The majority text has the priest and the officer of the temple. I do not know how the King James Version has here, and rather redundantly, so they use the word chief in one instance in place of high, the phrase, the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priests, which I would suspect to be an obscure reading of some very late manuscript. A particular adversary of mine recently insisted that the... um, the majority text was much more accurate than the NA-27. Well, it doesn't really matter. The readings of the most ancient manuscripts, which the NA-27 presents, the Nestle-Aland 27th edition presents, that is most important. Just an example. There are lots of problems with the majority text. The text is receptus. Verse twenty-five. But someone arriving announced to them that behold, the men whom you put into the cell are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then going out, the officer with attendants the brought them, not with force. Now here the Codex Bezae wants the word not, which seems to be an error in transcription. For so they feared the people lest they should be stoned. The Codex Alexandrinus and the majority text have that they would not be stoned. Of course, it was the Sadducees who feared being stoned by the people who were exalting the apostles. So they couldn't seize them with force. They had to be careful and treat them with kid gloves. So it is absolutely evident that the high priests at the time of the crucifixion were Sadducees, and of those earliest persecutors of Christians were Sadducees, those who deny that there is any other world or life than this one. Those who deny the existence of the spirit, of angels, of the resurrection, or of any sort of an afterlife, the Sadducees deny all those things. The Sadducees also, as we found when we presented Acts chapter 4, as we found from the pages of Josephus, the Sadducees also deny the hand of God in the world. In that same place in Josephus, we saw that the Sadducees Consider morality to be relative to the individual. While they did not go so far as to deny God himself or his existence, they certainly came as close as possible to that by denying his role in the world. Therefore, they denied God so far as it was safe for them to do so at the time these are clearly of the same ilk as those who were in our own time are labeled as liberals or progressives or humanists, the abject materialists and the deniers of God in the world today. And they are the first persecutors of Christians in the world today. It's the same exact pattern. In contrast, the only truly repugnant ideas of the Pharisees was their legalism, their reliance upon the conduct of rituals, and their following of strict interpretations of the law as the source of their righteousness, when indeed they were also very hypo- often very hypocritical. Even most identity Christians put the primary blame for the crucifixion on the Pharisees today. And it was really these godless Sadducees who all along were the primary persecutors of Christ and his apostles. It was they who agitated the crucifixion. It was they who agitated the deaths of the apostles. The arrest of Paul, they tried to kill Paul. And the high priest in Paul's time, when Paul was arrested, was a Sadducee. The high priest... The same high priest was high priest when James was slain. James, the brother of the Lord, which we read recently from the pages of Josephus in this presentation. The godless Edomite bastards, today they're called Jews, they have always been the first persecutors of Christians. Verse 27. And bringing them They stood them among the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, Did we instruct you with instructions not to teach by this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you desire the blood of this man to be brought upon us. Now the NA27, following the Codex Bezae and the Majority Text, began the question here with the rhetorical negative: Did we not instruct you? There's really no difference, right? The text here follows the Codices Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, and Vaticanus. The Sadducees were afraid that if the name of Joshua became famous, then the magnitude of their sin would be manifest, and the people would avenge him. However, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 27, all of those people in Jerusalem who were present when Christ stood before Pilate, which includes the Sadducees, who were the leaders, they were their leaders and their chief instigators, had already accepted the price for his blood upon themselves, where we read from verse 24. And Pilate, seeing that nothing helps, but rather a tumult arises, a tumult instigated by these same high priests. Taking water, washed the hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this man. You see to it. And responding, all the people said, his blood is upon us and upon our children, today's Jews. Furthermore, If the Sadducees had understood the prophecy of Daniel concerning the coming of the Messiah and his death, or his cutting off, on behalf of the people, they may have also understood that the destruction of Jerusalem was inevitable. For that same passage in Daniel chapter 9 states, 70 weeks. 490 prophetic years are determined upon my people and upon my holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and a prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem under the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times and after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off but not for himself and the people of the Prince meaning that Messiah the Prince of verse 25. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city in the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with the flood. It was. It was with the flood of Roman soldiers, Edomite bastards, and fire and brimstone, where Josephus says that 1.1 million people were slain. And the end thereof shall be with the flood. And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease and for the overspreading of abominations and Joseph describes Jerusalem in this period leading up to its destruction as a pretty vile and disgusting place full of pretty vile and wicked people, and to the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate, as Christ told them, your house is left unto you desolate, so be it, that's the way it was, they are the enemies of God. Later, Paul indeed understood these words of Daniel and approximately 15 years before they were fulfilled, he told the Romans, to whom he addressed his epistle in Romans 16.20, as the King James Version has it, and the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Satan, who is manifest in the Edomite Jew. That's one manifestation. Verse 29. But replying, Peter and the ambassadors said, It is necessary to be obedient to Yahweh rather than men. They were being commanded not to teach in the name of Yahshua. The God of our fathers raised up Yahshua, whom you had taken in hand, hanging upon a timber. Him, founder and savior, Yahweh elevated to his right hand for which to give repentance and the remission of errors to Israel. The Codex Beze has elevated to his honor rather than to his right hand. And the Greek words for hand and honor are very close in form. It's probably a scribal error. Notice that the repentance and remission of sins are for Israel. And the scope of that redemption which is in Christ has not been imagined by these early Christians to be beyond what is stated here. The universalism of the later church organizations is not properly found in Scripture. This attitude which Peter displays is the attitude that Christians should always have with government, professing the certainty that God must come first. That's the first commandment. Honor Yahweh thy God. While we are all under the subjection of the governments of man, which Paul explained in Romans chapter 13, and which Peter also advises in his epistles at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. We must nevertheless obey Yahweh first. If that means that we are persecuted by an unjust government, so be it. There is no guarantee that Christians would not be persecuted. And contrarily, We are told that we certainly would be persecuted. Luke 6.22 Blessed are you when men hate you and when they separate from you and they reproach and they cast out your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for behold your reward is great in heaven. For in accordance with these same things did their fathers to the prophets, 1 Peter, verse 4, I'm sorry, chapter 4, from verse 15. For not any among you must suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler in the matters of others. But if as a Christian, you must not be ashamed, but you must honor Yahweh by this name. because the time of judgment is to begin for the house of Yahweh. But if for us first, what is the end for those who are disobedient to the gospel of Yahweh? Verse 32, Acts chapter 5. And we are witnesses of these words. And the Holy Spirit, which Yahweh has given to those who are obedient to him, There's some differences among the manuscripts here. The Codex Vaticanist says, and we are witnesses by him. The majority text has, and we are his witnesses. Psalm 95. Let's see who the sheep were. Oh come, let us sing unto Yahweh. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. For Yahweh is the great God and the great king above all gods, all small g-gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is his also. The sea is his, and he made it. And his hands formed a dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before Yahweh our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, and Paul quotes this in in relation to the gospel and the children of Israel in his epistle to the Hebrews. Today, if you will hear his voice. Harden not your heart, as in the provocation, as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work, 40 years long I was grieved with this generation, I would have probably translated that word race, and said, it is the people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Under whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. The children of Israel were long aforetime destined by Yahweh to be obedient to him, one way or another. Therefore, as it is recorded in John chapter 10, Christ professed, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Israel, we are the sheep of his pasture. Nobody else can make a claim to be the sheep. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Therefore, not everyone is a sheep. Therefore, when Christ said, My sheep hear my voice, that too is a matter of prophecy. Psalm 95. And it only concerned the children of Israel, because he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. My sheep hear my voice and neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Acts 5, verse 33. And those listening were cut through and determined to kill them. But there arose one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law. Held in honor by all the people. Gamaliel is mentioned again at Acts 22, 3. Where Paul professed to be one of his students, he commanded the men to be put outside for a while. The Codex Bezé and the majority text read apostles there rather than men. Literally, the phrase to be put outside for a while is to do a while outside. Verse 35. Then he said to them, men, Israelites, take heed for yourselves what you were about to do to these men. For before these days stood up Thutis, saying for himself to be somebody, to whom was attached a number of about four hundred men, who was slain. And all as many as were persuaded by him dissolved and came to nothing. Thutis and his fate are mentioned by Josephus at Acts, book 20, lines 97 through 98. And I'll quote, Now it came to pass, while Thaddeus was procurator of Judea, that a certain magician, imagine that, whose name was Thutis, persuaded a great part of the people to take their effects with them and follow him to the River Jordan. For he told them he was a prophet and that he would, by his own command, divide the river and afford them an easy passage over it. And many were deluded by his words. However, Faddis, the Roman pure procurator, did not permit them to make any advantage of his wild attempt but sent a troop of horsemen out against them, who falling upon them unexpectedly slew many of them and took many of them alive. They also took Judas alive and cut off his head and carried it to Jerusalem. Verse 37, the words of Gamaliel. After that arose Judas the Galilean, Judah, literally, or Judas, the Galilean in the days of the registration, and people revolted behind him. And he was destroyed. And all as many as were persuaded by him were scattered. The Codex Ephraim, Siri, and the Codex Bezai have many people. The majority text has considerable people. This Judas the Galilean is mentioned by Josephus quite often, Antiquities Book 17, in connection with the same registration which Josephus calls after a different Greek word, which means evaluation, at Antiquities Book 18, and in Wars Book 2, in connection with the same registration we read about at the birth, time of the birth of Christ. That this is the same registration from around the time of the birth of Christ, which is mentioned here by Gamaliel and by Josephus in Antiquities Book 18, in connection with Judas the Galilean. We can be certain Because both Josephus and Luke connect that registration to that same Quirinius who was the governor of Syria, as Luke says in chapter 2 of his Gospel. This first registration happened while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Josephus accredited this Judas Judas the Galilean, mentioned here by Gamaliel, With beginning a fourth sect of Judean philosophy, fourth after the sects of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes, in his Antiquities Book 18 at line 23, where he says, But of the fourth sect of Judean philosophy, Judas the Galilean was the author. These men agree in all other things with the Pharisaic notions, but they have an inviolable attachment to liberty, and they say that God is to be their only ruler and Lord. They also do not value dying any kinds of death, nor indeed do they heed the deaths of their relatives and friends, nor can any such fear make them call any man a lord. The nature of this sect, described by Josephus, So much alike the nature of the sectarian documents found among the Dead Sea Scrolls leads me to believe that this sect may be the authors of those scrolls, the sect of Judas the Galilean, which was quite large when he assembled it, but which didn't last very long. Among other things, Josephus said of Judas the Galilean in Wars, Book 2, line 118, speaking of the time of the governorship of Quirinius, and the reign of Herod Archelaus, who was the son and successor to the first Herod, that under his administration it was that a certain Galilean, whose name was Judas, prevailed with his countrymen to revolt, and said they were cowards if they would endure to pay a tax to the Romans, and would, after God, submit to mortal man as their lords. This man was a teacher of a peculiar sect of his own and was not at all like the rest of their leaders. So therefore, basically, Judas the Galilean was a tax protester who founded his own religious sect. That sounds familiar. He and two of his sons were soon killed. His sons were crucified by the Romans. A third son, a leader of a band of robbers named Menahem, was at a later time killed at Masada. Verse 38, Acts chapter 5. And now, the words of Gamaliel continued, I say these things to you, distance yourselves from these men and release them, because if this counsel or this work should be of men, it shall be broken up. But if it is from Yahweh, you shall not be able to break them up, lest then you are found fighting Yahweh. And they were persuaded by him. Some translation notes, the Codex Vaticanus wants to phrase these things at the beginning of verse 38. The Codex Bezae and the majority text have allow them rather than release them later in the same verse. After the phrase release them, the Codex Bezae inserts do not stain your hands, another embellishment. The Codex Ephraim and and the majority texts have break it up. Where it says, it shall be broken up. At the end of verse 38. After this phrase, the Codex Beze inserts, neither you nor kings nor tyrants, therefore keep yourselves away from these men. That's a large embellishment. Verse 40, Acts chapter 5. And calling forth the ambassadors, flaying them, they instructed, the word may be rendered, they commanded, they instructed them not to speak by the name of Joshua and released them. So then, they went rejoicing from the presence of the council because they had been deemed worthy to, to be dishonored on behalf of the name. Blessed are you. The majority text has on behalf of the name of Joshua, or Jesus. Verse 42. And every day at the temple and at each house, they ceased not teaching and announcing the good message of Christ Yahshua. The advice of Gamaliel here was very wise, and it was perfect for the situation. He basically challenged the council to let these men go, because Yahweh was in control of the fates of men. And if they were indeed heretics, Yahweh would punish them. This is exactly the same attitude later displayed by Paul where at Romans 8.31 he asks what shall we say then to these things? If God be for us who can be against us? Gamaliel offered very sage advice without embracing or endorsing Christianity based on past Judean history, he challenged the council to let these men go and his challenge prevailed on the basis that if God is for us, who can be against us? 2 Chronicles chapter 13 from verse 12. And behold, God himself is with us for our captain and his priests with sounding trumpets to cry alarm against you, O children of Israel, fight ye not against Yahweh, God of your fathers, for you shall not prosper. Many identity Christians, and and especially those of the party to Paul bashers, have unjustly criticized Paul for having been educated at the feet of Gamaliel which is this same man. However, here, Gamaliel proves that he is much more faithful a man than many of the Paul Bashers, than many of the critics of our Bible. Thank you for listening, and good night. I will be here next week, Yahweh willing, with Acts chapter 6, Probably what I will title Acts chapters six and seven, part one, since Acts I, I won't. Acts chapter six doesn't look like it'll be very long. I will probably get into Acts chapter seven and finish it the following week. The um, the martyrdom of Stephen is explained in those chapters, and and the account in seven is quite long. I will be here tomorrow night with a discussion with Sword Brethren on National Socialist German economic policy. That might sound boring. I don't think it will be boring, and it's important because first we have to understand why the Jews, why world Jewry had to destroy Adolf Hitler's Germany. Second, we have to understand that Adolf Hitler's Germany was only seeking economic freedom from world Jewry. That same economic freedom that the founders of this nation sought 250 years earlier or perhaps 150 years earlier and I can't add. Another thing that has to be understood is that the economic program in place in National Socialist Germany and and well advertised was certainly not Marxist. It was a free enterprise-based system. Another thing that has to be understood is that a nation worried about export debits and credits is not the kind of nation that has plans to take over the world. And and there are many, many national socialist documents which – lay to rest all the lies of the Jews if Christians would only read them. So I believe tomorrow night's presentation will be important. I pray that it's relevant. I'm sure it will be. This weekend, the Saxon Messenger for May, I'm running a little late, the Saxon Messenger for May will be announced in an email from christigenia.org. I pray on Sunday. That's my plan. And we're also late with Christian Emma, Clifton Emma Heiser's newest publications and, and I pray to have them out the mailing Monday or Tuesday. Praise Yahweh! Thank you for listening. I'll be here tomorrow.